Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Wind gap. There's a murder there. One of the ones missing now. Get me a story. Bad mama. Goodness, I didn't expect you. The house is not up to par for visitors. I'm just in town on business. What kind of person does that? Hurt a child. Doesn't help anything. Riling folks up. You got two mutilated girls on your hands. Someone else is doing the rhyming. I didn't come back to cause any problems. Everything you do comes back on me. Mama says I need to be careful around you. Are you dangerous? Hello and welcome to Still Watching Sharp Objects, an unofficial podcast with the HBO series Sharp Objects. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Each week we are breaking down the latest episode and occasionally featuring interviews with people who worked on the show itself. Um, We're also in this version of still watching doing a special book reader section at the end of every episode we've got some quote-unquote spoilers just little hints that book readers might want to talk about but we don't want to mix it into the regular conversation and potentially spoil anyone on anything that's coming up in the series so until you get to that section we will be spoiling only up through episode three titled fix directed by jean-marc valet and written by gillian flynn um, but before we get into our recap, we also had a couple listener emails, uh, and thank you guys all for your feedback. I really appreciate it. Uh, the first listener email I want to read is from someone who is an actual journalist, as opposed to like Richard and myself, who, uh, are like more, we're, we're critics kind of, we're commenters. I don't know what C- we want culture to writers, culture writers, but yeah. we like, we, we don't always know the like hard and fast rules of journalistic ethics when it comes to dead, yeah. gr- dead girls bedrooms because i've i've never been in one invited or, or otherwise so i don't even own uh, a fedora with a press card in it 
I do, unfortunately. <laughs> but, that, that's, but it's unrelated to your, your work. Right, right, right. That's yeah. for weekend wear. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this comes from Gretchen Winner, and she says, uh, I've been a reporter at Daily Newspaper for 17 years, so had some thoughts on Camille's reporterliness in episode two. Uh, at the papers I've worked at, mainstream, decent, mid-sized dailies, roughly similar to hers, it would absolutely have been an ethical violation to go into the murdered girl's room without the family's permission and to describe it in print. That alone could have triggered disciplinary action or worse, lying to an editor about it would almost certainly have gotten someone fired. I've been trying to figure out whether she's supposed to be a good reporter, but my take so far is that she's not supposed to be particularly good, or at least is not working up to her potential. Her missteps, from my view, seem due to her ambivalence about the assignment and her slipping emotional state rather than inherent talent. Of course, it would be a boring and entirely different show if she spent all her time establishing rapport to get permission to go into a girl's room or quietly, undisruptively took usable notes while standing alone at the rear of a funeral service, etc. And she says, thanks so much for all the thoughtful and humorous coverage. So thank you, Gretchen, for that insight. Yeah, so um, Camille's bad reporterliness kind of comes to bite her a bit more in this episode as, as both Richard and uh, the sheriff in the town have obviously like read her article and don't yeah. think much of it or her. So um. it's funny to think about someone like her who we actually, we learn a bit more about her past in this episode, but like, she's a total mess, you know, drinking all the time, got a lot of psychological baggage, just bumming around, like not living a, like a very good life. And yet like her job is like a reporter, which is sort of like a rare ish job, you know, like, it's not like she like, like is late to her shift at like the gap, you know, like, I don't know. It's just like, it's kind of like a career-y job for someone who's like that much of a disaster to have. But I mean, I'm sure that it happens. Yeah, I guess, it, I guess we still have yet to see exactly what it is Curry sees in her, but like he yeah. definitely believes in her and, and cares about her. Uh, it would be nice to get some of that backstory as to like why he is like bolstering her up in a role that she yeah seems like mentally at least unfit for you know right now so it it implies ambition you know which is like not a lot we don't see a lot of sort of active um behavior you know or sort of emotion from her like it's all very sort of destructive and sort of whatever so at least maybe that's one part of her life that she like cares about I think the action, the most active thing around this that we see from her is her discussion of how um, being smart, reading books, whatever, got her out of the town. Like she needed right. some sort of forward momentum out of that town, and her being not even like good at her job, but at least functioning at her job, is part of that whole like exit from Wind Gap narrative. I think that makes sense. Is like something that she would actually devote some uh, energy to. So. Uh, and then uh, our second and final email comes from Russ, who writes in, he says, Hey, Joanna Richard, just wanted to throw out there that although I share your tornness about the larger role of Detective Dick and subsequent cost of more time focused on a male character, my favorite part of Westworld season two is the power struggle between powerful women that seem to peak mid-season then drop off. I do have to say that I think his scenes serve as a nice break for those of us more jumpy watchers, a chance to ground ourselves and catch our breath in the more law and order familiarity, even if it is the anti-law and order type of show that we or I came here to watch. Um, he says, love what you guys do. I watch the shows so I can listen to the pod. Thanks, Russ. Um, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me that like a bit of procedural um, action would anchor, especially an episode like this one, which is so um, cutting back and forth in time in Camille's head. Like, what do, what do you think of that? Yeah, um, no, I think, tactic? Yeah. I think it makes sense. And it makes sense in this episode, you know, because... Um, 
you know, it is television. It has to be a little bit narratively advancing episode by episode. And I guess you could, you know, you could certainly make the argument that learning about someone's past is advancing narrative or at least expanding it. Um, but I think, you know, to satisfy the sort of more casual television viewer, it helps to have Detective Dick asking like kind of exposition-y questions to kind of just ground us in, in, in a, in a sort of more concrete, familiar story. And I mean, that is definitely a thing that happened in the book where like the town, the townspeople and the sheriff especially are like insistent that this is like an outside job, an outsider did this, right? You, you brought this up, I think last week where you talked about how like Camille and Richard bonded a little bit because they are somewhat outsiders. And Mm -hmm. then in this episode, we get some of like John Keane, uh, Natalie's brother talking about being an outsider because they just moved to Wind Gap like a couple years previous. So this idea of outsiders and insiders, but like at the same time, yeah, the Wind Gap people are just so sure and insistent that this is an outsider. It's, it's a Mexican, it's a day laborer, it's whatever, you know, and then... <laughs> Which is funny because, like, I mean, obviously we have a different perspective on it than these fictional townspeople, but, like, everything about that town is creepy. Like, even if there weren't murders, like, there's, like, the smell of dead pigs in the air, like, all the time. Like, wh- <laughs> why would this town not think that they're, that it could, you know, why would these people think that this town couldn't breed something like this? You know, it's just, like, funny, but sort of question of perspective yeah exactly um so yeah the the refusal to recognize the rot in your own town even as it's like rotting around you so yeah uh we are going to do something like a little different in our rundown this week we decided because of the way the episode jumps back and forth in time we're gonna pull the story of camille's uh rehab roommate Alice out and sort of go through that first before we go through the rest of the episode chronologically. We get it in bits and flashes. It's like an incredibly intricate little puzzle that Jean-Marc Vallée has put together due to editing um, and all sorts of things. But like, I was struck by two moments of the flashing back and forth in particular, one being Camille looking at like the back of... um, Ashley, who's John's girlfriend, like the back of her legs, and then like cutting to like her roommate getting dressed and trying to put a skirt on. Like she's looking at this girl. This girl wears like a super short romper. Ashley, who's the worst, and I love her, is wearing this super short romper so you can see all of her legs. And obviously, like Camille can't show off her legs, and her roommate Alice also couldn't show off her thighs because she had cut like all the way down to like right above her knee. So, this idea of like the untouched flesh on Ashley and then like cut to Alice trying to cover hers with a long skirt um, I thought was particularly good and then there's this other one where like I wasn't sure how much of this like back and forth flashing was done after the fact in the editing room and how much of it was planned but there is this one part where Camille is driving around and she's remembering a scene and she, you see her like mouth along the line that she says in the past in the present as she's driving the car. And it's just like, I don't know. I, I like, I, I imagine Jean-Marc Marley has to have like a crazy red yarn wall cork board, like yeah, <laughs> to put these episodes together, yeah. you know? Like, um, and, and there's yeah. the, some, some of the stuff in the flashback, like one of the, one of the little visual motifs, is a very, you know, fuzzy, out of focus, just like you don't really know what you're looking at, like a blot of red approaching maybe a window, you know, 
and then late, much, much later episode, you realize that it's, it's, um, Alan, like, carrying roses to Camille in the rehab facility. And it's just like, it's, it's, it feels like such an arbitrary, strange detail to highlight, but it's visually so interesting. And yeah. so the way that he's able to both have little shards that are narratively important and others that are kind of like just stylistic and kind of meld that together and kind of balance it all out is really amazing. I mean, he's a real like, like he's really good at these collagey kind of things it's it's kind of incredible and i think this episode because we get the most fleshed out so to speak uh flashback and use of the of the little of the memory motif like you really see like how good he is at doing this yeah and you've got and he threads that through other things like the scene of Adora in her garden with the roses or the dried roses that are in Marion's room. Like the roses repeat, but you're right that like, and, and cause we also see like flashes of pools of blood also. So like, you know, the roses, the roses repeat, but they're also interesting just as you say, visually as a sort of like, yeah, menacing blot of red coming at you. What is this? Oh, it's Alan with the roses. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, um, okay. So we learned that, um, Camille had a roommate when she was in a rehab facility that she checked into before she came to Wind Gap. Um, and do we have a sense of, of when exactly this was? I, my sense is that it's, it's hard because the timeline is different in the show than it is in the book. But like, my sense is that it's actually pretty soon before this assignment that this happened because i think this is what a lot of uh what curry is talking about in terms of like you know this will be good for her yeah she needs this sort of thing i think yeah. he you know her editor's like she just got out of this facility like sh- you know this terrible thing happened while she was in the facility she needs this thing to focus on sort of thing um but yeah i like how ambiguous she is when uh, alice asks her how old she is and she just goes older than you <laughs> i'm like great that doesn't <laughs> doesn't help my timeline at all thanks, thanks camille. Um, yeah. but yeah so 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 camille has voluntarily checked herself into a facility um we find out at the end of the episode that like her entrance word that she carves into herself right before she goes in there is the word fix which gives the title uh the episode's title so she carves the word fix into her arm and then walks into a facility and asks for help um basically and we meet her roommate there now this is a section of the book that had literally i want to say three paragraphs uh, you know, she mentions in passing, and this is true of another major thing that will, I, I am certain, show up later in the series. But Camille in the book mentions in passing, oh, yes, that time I pulled the screws off my toilet in, and tried to like slash myself open. And also a week later, my, like, the timeline is different in the book. She's like, and a week later, my roommate killed herself. She swallowed some Windex. That's it. You know, and so she doesn't talk like the stuff with the music, all this sort of stuff. Her relationship with Alice is not something that the book dives into. And that's something that like, I I don't know, kind of frustrated me the first time the way that Camille will just like drop these trauma bombs passing and then like sort of walk away from them in the book. Um, But now I don't know, I kind of feel like it's a very intentional like she's got so much shit down there that we don't even get to see all of it. You know what I mean? So but the show is making making time for for this Alice character who I really really like. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and yeah. I think that you know, there's the line I remember getting we're jumping out of the Alice for a second or I am anyway, but there's the line yeah. where 
um, Emma says, you love dead girls. And yes, like that could be the name of the episode. If we weren't naming the episodes after her, you know, scars. Um, but also like is kind of an indictment of like all of us, you know, because we, everyone, we can, we, we consume a lot of media, be they books, TV shows, movies about dead girls. And, um, this is another show about that, but I think that in including the Alice stuff and having it be almost overloaded with dead girls, you start kind of questioning the whole enterprise. You're like, what is, what is this obsession about? How, what is it really doing to us? And I think that in the form of Camille, we kind of get something of an answer to that. You know, like it kind of, it, it corrodes us and, you know, or sort of our view of the world or, you know, it's a sort of, it's a kind of self harm in a way. So I don't know. I just think it's interesting that, um, in sort of, you know, almost overstuffing, the, the show by including, you know, a sort of more um, developed version of Alice than the book has, um, it sort of better serves the point and better hones the point. Yeah, that line that Emma says, you love dead girls. And I was just like, it kind of blew my mind open. And like the having when she just says, like, my roommate killed herself, like, uh, and I think she's like a cheerleader or something like that. Like, you don't really think about that much. But when you see Alice, and you see her as this sort of like halfway between her young sister, Marion, who died, and Emma. There's, like, cuts in this episode that sort of draw a connection between Emma and um, Alice. Um, she becomes, yeah, just part of this spectrum of, like, these these sad, dangerous, tragic, scary girls in Camille's life. And, like, I, I love what you say about that, about... Um, that, that's not something that I had thought too deeply about until... Um, the, did you ever, did you watch the killing on AMC? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, like when the killing came out and they had a whole, they basically copied the Twin Peaks like Who Killed Lawyer Palmer um, ad campaign uh, with the with the young victim of the killing, and that's when I started reading a lot of pieces about like, hey, maybe it doesn't always have to be a teenage girl who's yeah. like the center of these stories who's died um it was definitely something people criticized three billboards about you know the three billboards yeah. outside of ebbing missouri like th- that movie you know hung its whole sort of dramatic you know backstory on this murdered raped young woman who like we barely saw in the movie you know um as if she was more sort of a you know f- function of the plot than a than a character or a human being or whatever, or a a fictional human being. So anyway, it's something that I think this show is commenting on. And I think it's something that Gillian Flynn, in terms of her explorations through genre of, you know, uh, aspects of the female experience and feminism and um, the way that, you know, womanhood exists in a, in a patriarchal sort of violent society. um, I think that this is the episode where that kind of thematic engine really kicks in. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. 
Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Yeah, so the interesting thing about the Alice storyline is like, I kind of thought they were going to do this just based on the series trailer alone. There was just some shots in the series trailer where I was like, okay, I think we're going to get more of of Camille's time in the rehab facility uh, than we did in the book. And then when the show started and we started to see this blonde ghost girl that was not Marion, I was like, ooh, that's probably the roommate. That's interesting that they're sort of, you know, so so if you go back, this is not a highly rewatchable show, I imagine, but if you want to go back and watch episodes one and two, uh, you'll notice kind of every time she looks at a toilet, uh, mm-hmm. she has like a flash of this girl. She had her um, like in the motel in episode one. They, they connected the flashes in this episode to that, like the train, like the ghostly figure she saw on the train. She saw her in the room in episode two. So like the uh, all the times that Camille is like glanced at a toilet and, and now we know she's thinking about the fact that there are screws and a sharp object. Like everything's a sharp object. Even like a white rounded thing can be a sharp object, you know, um, yeah. if you know what you're looking for. And this idea that Alice has been haunting her all along without the show introducing exactly who she is until episode so three, I think, is kind of um, interesting and bold storytelling. I agree. And I think that that it's sewn really well into the bigger story. I mean, I, you know, that, that Alice, when she kills herself right before that, you know, Camille had been in bed with her, kind of comforting her because she was feeling not well, you know, like she was sad. And then you juxtapose that to a quick flashback in this episode of, um, Adora crying in her dead daughter's bed, you know, presumably who comforted her in that bed when, and, and maybe Camille did or didn't and feels guilty about that. So just all of those sort of parallels, um, make the Alice kind of digression, if you want to call it that, like feel really worth it. Yeah. And also this idea that like, uh, you know, I'm of the belief that Camille shouldn't feel guilt around this girl's death. Um, but obviously she probably does. And, um, whether it's like because she's responsible for like I don't know leaving the door open or leaving her alone or whatever it is um, we think she did or the way in which Alice twice in this episode kind of asks Camille like does it get better and Camille basically says no mm-hmm. uh, I'm I still have your problems with cutting I still have your problems with the family I'm older than you and it's still a problem for me and so then Alice like you know maybe. Uh, the light at the end of the tunnel doesn't like sort of goes out for her uh, because of Camille. And that's not Camille's fault, but that is something that I could definitely see someone like Camille taking on for sure. Maybe I should not have given her those answers. Maybe I should have lied to her or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, so that's, so this is the Alice stuff. Um, I think she's great. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, um, brief role and, and not like something we're completely under familiar with. If we've seen like, girl interrupted or some very uh, like other things this is not like um nothing we've ever seen before but i i think it's um it's useful especially to see the ways in which camille was trying to be a mother without having a good mother role model to you know follow that scene where she puts like lip gloss on Alice and she's like, you know, my mother always said this and she like repeats what her mother says without like with obviously not agreeing or believing with what her mother said. Yeah. And like, but playing the mother anyway, you know, it's sort of, it's interesting to see, it was interesting to see her in this sort of, you know, maternal, but also just warm 
and sort of yeah. like she had a little bit of a cheer about her, um, despite you know the circumstances of where she was and where Alice was. Um, but so this is a, a very silly thing, but like I was think so in, in watching this show and and anything that Jean Marc Vallee makes, I just wonder about the actual process of production, like. You know, because these are quick little cuts, so I mean, you have to, like, but you still have to set up the shot and whatever like that. So it just must be a lot of like the actors being like, so we're just going to stand here for like two seconds and you're just going to film us for a second, you know, or I don't know how it works. But anyway, I was thinking if they shot this show, <laughs> if they shot this show in chronological order, it's entirely likely that Sydney Sweeney, who plays Alice, her first day on set was just put this blood on your mouth and stand in this old train caboose and don't worry, we'll explain it later. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is fine. Just stand in the corner of this room. It, it'll, it'll make sense. Yeah, yeah. Just don't stand worry about there. it. Yeah, yeah. Just, just stand right there. It's like two seconds, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Smear some blood on you. It'll be fine. Yeah, this is yeah. fine. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. So the other, um, I would say the other major revelation this episode for me is like a deepening of my appreciation for what Eliza Scanlon is doing as Emma. Yeah. Um. The. Uh, I think we get much more of the dichotomy in this episode, even though we got like the revelation in episode one that she's living a dual life. I think this sort of angel devil, like the devilishness of her other side, I think really comes through a lot stronger this episode than it has before. Um, and so let's talk about Emma. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, I guess we're just going to jump around, but like yeah. the, the scene where there is, so, she, you know, Camille's get, trying to get stuff out of detective Dick and the bar closes. And I think the bartender was maybe a little jealous and that's kind of yeah. why he like closed the bar early or whatever. So they right. go drinking to sit in their car at, the, at her old high school hangout spot. And Emma shows up drunk with her, you know, the, the, her witch friends. Um, and, is all of a sudden just like really cruel and taunting to Camille in a way that she has not been before. And she puts a lollipop in her hair and her friends are snickering. And it's like this kind of like really dark thing. And there's a great little bit in, in Amy Adams's performance where there's a second where she registers like a real shock at, at it, you know, because it's, it's more than she even thought Um that, you know, cause she knew that Camille, that Emma was doing, you know, the kind of like angel devil thing, but like, this is even something I think that Camille didn't anticipate and thus can't sort of subtly control, um, which I thought was a really interesting, um, you know, expansion or what, or sort of complication, complicating of the power dynamic between them. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like, you know how you and I last week talked about how scary, uh, teens can be, uh, oh, yeah. when, when Camille and Dick are in the parking lot and they're like, you know, right on the verge of, of hooking up basically. And then like you hear, the engines and the and the sounds of those skates on the ground. I'm like, no, it's the youth. Oh, I know. God. Yeah, I know. Um, and and then like the you know the, a lot of talk these days about how because well for, forgive our conservative listeners, but because Trump is such a fucking evil moron uh, who just like willfully lies all the time that it's emboldened like all of the evil moron on people on the right to just lie all the time. And I think in this scene. Because the other kids see Emma, who's sort of, I guess, that's kind of, you know, ringleader, right. being such a, you know, so mean to her sister, it emboldens them to do it. And so they start kind of snickering louder and yelling things at them. And it's just like this really creepy, like, this escalated quickly and could pretty swiftly turn into something actually really bad. Yeah, I think earlier in the episode or earlier in that scene, Camille had called it like what Midwest Lord of the Flies. But, but when she said that, she she was talking about an empty parking lot. Well, she was talking about what it was like when she was a high schooler. But then you really see it like, yeah, it's this like pack mentality. It reminds me of um, 
that Buffy episode where people turn into hyenas. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, these are hyena people. They have shown up uh, to to taunt and jeer. It's it's really scary. But like, um, so my favorite example of that in this episode is um, there, and Valet just does it with a cutscene where, okay, so in the middle of the episode, Camille has followed Emma to like the the hog processing plant, and Emma has gone there to see the pigs, uh, which is a totally normal teenage activity, and um. So she's holding the pigs and then she starts to walk out of the factory and Camille's sort of snooping and looking at her. And then Emma looks back like dead at Camille. Like, I see you looking at me. (laughs) Yeah. So, so such a good look. And then, um, valet has Camille like flash to Emma sort of giving her that look in like from earlier in the episode when she was super drunk and like half dressed and like whatever in her like most debauched, a lot of eyeliner down her face sort of look. And then in her like sweet apple pie angel look as well. And it's the same look across all three moments. And like, that's when I was like, shit, whatever Eliza Scanlon's doing is really, really working on me. So, um, yeah. And, and it's the same look and yet so changed by its context, by its clothing, you know, whatever. And yeah. I think that that's so interesting, but okay. So let's, um, that, that scene where she goes to see the pig, where she journeys to the center of the hog heat, why anyone willingly do that? <laughs> I do not know. Let's just go to the molten hot core of the hog heat. Uh, what is the implication there? What is she supposed to be? She's just saying hi to the piglet or, is, and then she and that guy kind of disappear around a corner. Is she going to slaughter the pig or is she going to hook up with that guy? Like, are we supposed to take anything more out of it than she just wanted to go see a pig? I mean, I kind of want to reserve some of my thoughts on this for the uh, the book spoilers section, Fair to enough. be honest with you. But uh, I think, I, I mean, it's kind of cute. Like, she's watching, like, the little pigs suckling. Like, that's kind of cute. I'm like, I could see a teen wanting to do that. But Emma's such a creepy, weird teen that, like, you know, I never, you never know what she's doing uh, uh, deep in the heart of hog heat. So, um. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk we, about that. We won't um, put it in a drawer. It will just, you know. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so, like, at the top of the episode, Emma, get, Emma gets busted for, like, Emma and all her teenage friends get busted. She drives golf cart home. Uh, Gillian Flynn said in her interview with, reminded me in her interview with me last week that, like, in the books, right, there are no roller skates. All The kids all get around with golf carts. The roller skates were Jean-Marc Vallée's idea. She was like, I wasn't really for it. And then I saw them. And I was like, this is amazing. And it is. They are amazing. Just, like, just hearing the rasp of the wheels on the concrete, like, now, get like, inspire something in me like there's that scene in this episode where uh detective dick is in the alleyway looking at like the the shrine to natalie where natalie's body is found and you hear the wheels before you see the girls sort of skate by at the end of the alley and it's just like it's really chilling and effective i think but um the we see her crash her golf cart into the rosebush um and and i really like this first scene with emma and camille because it is such it's really recognizable to me as like um the enemy of my enemy is my friend so like our common enemy is mom (laughs) so like let me help you like somewhat aggressively terrible little sister in your drunkenness because like I don't want you to get caught by mom because this is this is something that I'm familiar with as well so um yeah it's the kind of thing where like even siblings that don't necessarily get along 
will still kind of like protect them from mom and dad or lo- or cover for them or whatever, you know? Yeah. It's just this kind of like compact that a lot of siblings, not all, of course, but many have signed with each other. Um, and I thought that was, I think, you know, and I think that that combined with the Alice stuff, like it's nice to see, a, not that women have to be nurturing or anything. It's just nice to see another shade of Camille, you know? Um, yeah. A, a bit, one that like hints at like maybe the sort of more contented person that could be. And the scene is lit really impressively in Camille's room. There's uh, something that I didn't know about Jean-Marc Vallée until like researching for this show is that uh, he, I don't know if only ever, but at least in this show, he only ever uses natural light, right? So a scene mm-hmm. is just lit by the lamps that are in the room. And so the scene with Camille and Emma at the beginning is like in semi-darkness and quite red and so you have this very like yeah hog heaty hellish sort Mm -hmm. of vibe to it it's very um uh i don't know i i just like maybe maybe not like the subtlest thing in the world to be like uh here's the demons here's the devil side of amma but like uh it's it's uh it's beautifully shot and the way they're sitting together on the bed and the way their hair looks i'm like these are this these are sisters like these are definitely sisters you know so yeah um yeah and the other thing that um gillian flynn brought up in our conversation last week that i didn't get into but i was reminded of in this episode is she brought up the idea of persephone which is something that um is associated with emma in the book but this idea of persephone is a mythological figure who spends half her time in hades um in hell and then half her time uh on earth with her mother or you know uh, in olympus with her mother like you know a, a girl pulled between these two spots and uh yeah and it's the foundation well in 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 certain greek mythology uh it's the explanation for the seasons because her mother controls the weather essentially and so when she's out of when her daughter's you know out of hades then it's spring and summer and it's lovely and then she goes back and it gets cold so yeah there is yeah i like that i like that thing and i guess i don't know how you would really tease that out in the show without being like really pretentious but right yeah, I mean, I think they might still do. I don't know if they're going to do like the actual Persephone speech later in the season. They might, and and I would trust them to figure out a way to do yeah. it where it doesn't. We're not rolling our eyes, but like the the lead up. Um, I guess yeah, just like look for, and it's already there. You're already looking for it, but look for like florals and stuff in the bright sunshine, and then like dark redness in like these other scenes, I think are like sort of the, the, the duality that they're setting up here. Yeah. So, um, and so then we get, um, we get some of the Alice stuff after that scene. And then we get, uh, Dick on, on the case, uh, you know, trying to convince Sheriff Vickery that it is not Mexicans or truckers who have done this. Um, and then we get the introduction of, or, or the further introduction of the character who I really did fall in love with this episode, which is Ashley, uh, John Keane's girlfriend, played by Madeline Davenport. What do you think of this of this new flavor of girl we're meeting in this town? I think that very easily played by the wrong person, the character could be kind of like a caricature and could be sort of maybe a little even snide about like a, a very ambitious, not Tracy Flick esque necessarily, but you know, maybe a cousin of, but I think that Madeline Davenport is so good and very subtle. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the, her bigger scene later, but like there's a, there's a moment in that that I just feel like really, um, was really like very deft, subtle acting. And, um, yeah. So I like her in it. And I think she's, you know, I, I, the, the, the show is increasingly interestingly populated, you know, 
Um, it's not just the big movie star, Patricia Clarkson and one other person. I like that there's, you know, we're getting a, a wider array of people. Yeah. And something that I mentioned to you before we started recording is this, um, interesting to me, at least addition of a names in the show. Um, Ashley in the book is named Meredith and Alice in the book doesn't have a name. Right. So, um, these a names, Ashley, Alice to go with Adora and Emma and Anne and Alan, like all these other a names that already exist in the text. And I was saying to you off air that like, usually when you see an adaptation, like I think of game of Thrones, in Game of Thrones, they changed some of the names because they sounded too familiar, like too similar to each other. Like an Asha and an Osha becomes like Osha and Yara because they like didn't want you don't want viewers to get confused by things that you can't read. And so, like, uh, and that happened in like, oh, in the TV series, The Magicians, they changed Janet to Margot because there were too many J names. Like, that's a thing that happens sometimes. And so, like, the fact that they're adding A names. <laughs> is interesting to me and i'm trying to figure out what it what it means if it means anything mm-hmm. yeah so um yeah so then i, I we think have, it's just yes, trying to create i think it's just trying to create a sort of sense of uh, you know not i mean i guess they're not all dead but like all these girls that 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 camille quote-unquote loves you know i think it, it 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 combines them a little bit more into one sort of mass of of uh both you know like allure and and kind of menace and it puts um Camille and Marion, who are two non-A names, like it, it was always seemed interesting to me that you have like Adora and Emma and Alan as like one part of the family unit, and then you have Camille and Marion, who are like two other names um, mm-hmm. as part of the same, and they so they're just like marked as different, as like more normal or not part of this like. Uh, you know, because Adora and Emma are super, super strange names to have. And so, um, anyway. Uh, all right. So, we get uh, multiple times in this episode, Camille, like, leaves because she can't handle what's going on in her house. And she'll go buy booze and then start going around town and seeing what she can see. So, uh, here we have her sort of encountering uh, Dick in a coffee shop. He doesn't want to give her any, like he sort of hides his notes from her, doesn't want to give her any information because he read her story and he thinks it's a piece of crap. Um, And nonetheless, and, and calls her out for flirting with him. And nonetheless, Gives her plenty of information, actually. Yeah. So yeah. whether that's like deliberate or he's just not as smooth as he thinks he is. Uh, but she's also good at playing, you know, sort of like not indicating that she's picking up interesting tidbits that she can actually use. She yeah. just sort of sits there and just pretends that like, oh, I'm not getting anything out of him, even though she is. Yeah. Um, and so then she like immediately like throws that back at Vickery and, and, uh, he has this line where he says that boy from Kansas City talks like a woman from Wingap. And I'm like, all right. Um, but yeah. So basically like, you know, she's, she's, she's playing, kind of playing both ends against the middle, both and still trying to do her thing. Uh, Curry had sort of pushed her early in the episode, like, you know what I want. I want the personal angle. Keep pushing, keep, keep pushing for access, blah, blah, blah. So this is, she's trying to do what her dad, <laughs> Curry, her editor dad has asked her to do. Um, and meanwhile, like her, her mom is, is like sort of uh, trying to make her feel like garbage for doing it. And um, that's when we get this scene with Bob Nash, where uh, like that Adora interrupts and, and basically like chides Camille out of the house. We find out that Adora had like a personal connection with Anne. Um, and we find out that she'd been tipped off by the police. 
Yes. Um, so it just further kind of illustrating her, you her know, influence. how that she runs this town. It's a really interesting moment. I think Patricia Clarkson plays everything really well, but I think she plays this, this scene of um, Adora's power in this scene where like, she has no leg to stand on. She is interrupting her daughter who is a grown ass adult doing her job. And Camille is right to push back on her. And still she can't, hold her ground against whatever injured, you know, self-righteousness Adora is bringing to any scene. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I think that there's also, you know, sort of subtle implications here and there about like, well, if you don't go along with what Adora wants now, what could she do to me later? You know, um, how, how much further could she exert that power? I mean, she could certainly get her out of the house or, you know, it's, or make everyone else in town clam up and not speak to her. So I think that she realizes she also has to play something of a game of appeasement if she wants to get anything done. Yeah. Um, so that whole thing happens. As you say, we find out that Vickery is like the one who tipped her off. We, that, that's where we got like the pig slaughter whatever it was scene and then um and then we get the second uh scene with ashley that you want to talk about where ashley has put her cheerleader uniform on despite the fact that school is uh not in session uh so what did you want to talk about specifically in this scene so i just the way that so they're, they're having this conversation um and you know camille asks him about like he's from philly no, philadelphia like do you do you like it here and the first when she first asked that question the way that um ashley uh sort of turns to him a little bit madeline davenport turns to him a little bit and 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 her expression just sort of changes into one of expectancy even though she knows the answer but she's wondering if she's coached him enough or, or has manipulated him enough that he will lie essentially yeah and say that he likes it so even though the lines where she's like, well, but then we never, we would have met, never have met if you hadn't moved here. Like, that's a little bit over the top, like, and sort of unsympathetic to someone whose do- uh, sister was just killed. But, like, I think that in her physical performance, like, she kind of gets at something a little bit more human. Um, I don't know. I just think that for whatever reason, I just sort of zeroed in on that. And I think that, like, her body language when she's sitting on that couch in her sad cheerleader uniform, uh, you know, <laughs> and she manages to not make the character a joke. Like, you actually kind of feel for this kid even though she's manipulative and, you know, probably herself hungry to get, out of, to get out of town. But she, that, you know, that town is where she lives at the moment and she can't really do anything about that at the moment. And so she's going to make it as like good as she can. And anything threatening that, um, you know, is, is, is a, is a, is a peril to her. And so, I don't know. I just think it's a great little scene. Yeah, no, I love it. Uh, you mentioned Tracy Flick. I thought of like, uh, like this is a character I could see Jenna Malone playing when she was younger. Sure. Or um, maybe an Anna Kendrick. Just someone who like does that sort of like, can do that like high strung um, with some like vulner, a lot of vulnerability uh, to like sort of plumb, plumb the humanity. I was thinking of like Anna Kendrick in Rocket Science. I don't know if you ever saw that. Uh, indie, Sundance indie thing that she I did. I did but, not. Um, the yeah it's just you're right there's this like insecurities vulnerability this like clearly a little girl trying to pretend to be grown up um you know you know trying to tell camille she's like well i can john does whatever i say i can get him for you don't worry about it like all of that i just i love her i love this performance i think it's so good so and this isn't a character that i really paid that much attention to in the book and whereas in the show i'm just like yes Give me more Ashley scenes. I want it. Um, and beyond beyond the Ashley stuff, which is great, 
yeah. you know, there, there it's continues this implication that there was something about John's relationship with his sister that not, not I don't want to say was off, but was intense in a way that like everyone seems to find uncommon and a little bit strange. Um, and I'm not sure because I don't remember in the book. Um, but I, so I'm not sure if I should expect the show to expand on that in any way, or if it's just kind of adding a sort of, you know, extra little mystery or moodiness to, to the story. Well, they do a similar thing, I think, with Bob in this episode, right? Where he's like, I could talk, he's like, I could talk to my daughter and, uh, in a way that I can't talk to any of my kids. Heck, I can't even talk to my wife that way. And you're right, like, right. Ugh, what don't are you like saying? it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, like that's straight out of the book, but that's like, I think, yeah, to, for these two men who are suspects to have these, uh, like maybe unhealthy attachments to these young women who died, um, I think all just, yeah, adds to deepens the mystery. Um, the also this idea of outsiderness, which I already mentioned this episode, but like Bob Bob Nash, I think because of like his socioeconomic um, standing, uh, is an outsider in his own way. And then John Keane, because he's like a so sensitive and b like you know he's a city boy, he's from the city, like is an outsider. And so they get lumped in with the like Mexicans and the truckers that um, you know Vickery keeps bringing up because they're not like they're not good old wing gap people uh whatever that means you mm-hmm. know? so um all right so we have that we've got this great shot of Emma like skating on the porch and doing like this skate dance stuff once again i don't know like how if maybe eliza scanlon was already like a crack skater but if she had to I, do some skating training she did a great job so and then we get this uh scene with adora and camille that like I wanted to scream in my Volvo about it because like Adora's gardening. She's being such a, such an asshole to Camille. And then she cuts herself. Then she goes, look what you've done. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. what? And then when Camille tries to defend herself, Adora says, nothing's ever your fault. Is it? And I'm like, what's happening? Is this real? Is this like, um, classic narcissist gaslighting warping of reality shit that just like makes me so infuriated to watch while also being like really admiring of what Patricia Clarkson's doing here. Totally. And this is coming on the heels. She has a a good confrontation scene with Emma after the cop tells her that, um, uh, Vickery tells her that he was, she was out, you know, past curfew. And that's like, I think I'm really the biggest scene we've had with Patricia Clarkson where, uh, with Adora, where where Camille hasn't been present, um, and so so we're getting more of her. You know, you you wonder what what Patty Clarkson's going to be doing on the show, and and they're starting to show us, um, and and yeah, so that that sort of just real m- mind fuck of a scene, you know, where she's you know look what you made, you know, look what you've done, uh, not even look what you made me do, look what you have no. done, look um, what you've done, <laughs> and and Camille, you know, sort of you know it is not quite petulant high school teenage way, but like there's a hint of it there, uh, where she's like I'm not the one who you know ran into the rose bushes or whatever, and it's true she's not, um, but uh, you know I think something we talked about in a past episode was how sometimes. Even the kid, the sibling who didn't do anything kind of gets yelled at, uh, instead or blamed or whatever, you know, in, in sort of family situations for, for various reasons. And I think that clearly Camille is experiencing that and the sort of oddness of that having that happen as an adult, 
um, where she thought she got out, she lives in the city, she's got a job, whatever, but it still has an impact on her. I think it's like an interesting dynamic that the show is exploring, like what it's like to be the adult child of a parent, you know, and uh, how old old systems kind of still are in place. They just kind of are, are warped and a little bit bent. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Like that response is like her getting sucked into Adora's reality. Yeah, exactly. Where I'm like, that's not the answer. The mm-hmm. answer isn't like, I'm not the one who crashed the golf cart. The answer is like, what are you talking about? You just cut yourself. It has nothing to do with me. Like, that's the answer. That's reality. But ad- but but Camille is sucked into this other thing where, yeah, that's such a like a classic sibling response of like, wasn't me. I wasn't the one who did it. You know, mm-hmm. like that's exactly what it is. So it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating because you want Camille to like keep her grip on reality but it's hard to like escape the gravitational pull of whatever it is adora has created her little dollhouse you know that she's created so uh and and we get like sort of a surprising aspect of that like so we get we get you know adora coming to the rehab facility throwing the roses on the ground i don't know why we don't know why something has displeased her and you know it's up to alan to put the bouquet back together and you and see the the nurse uh snipping the thorns off yeah oh which is oh, nice that's nice, probably why right like nice little i i thought that maybe that's why adora was getting mad because okay, her, her roses yeah. were being desecrated but maybe there was a bigger reason i don't know uh no no the thorns make sense i didn't i didn't get that um the Alan of this episode is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the show is mm-hmm. giving him something that the book didn't have space to give him, which is his own uh, frustrations around um, Adora. And um, like we, we saw it a bit like with his music and we saw it a bit like when he put the headphones on in the last episode. But in this episode where he's like trying to offer support, he's like, maybe I should stay with it, you. And she's like, nope, go back to your room, Alan. Thanks so much. And she says something like, oh, I don't think that's going to be necessary. <laughs> or it's some line like that where you're like what the fuck like like that's like such a cruel way to say that you know like oh no please you know don't 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 you know don't worry about it like n- no need to go to that kind of trouble you know oh, oh. it's just so like i don't know yeah um, um and then we get you know like alan turning up his music all this sort of stuff that i mean i'll, I'll just like zoom through the rest of alan's stuff in this episode and he gets he has this interesting like muffled scream thing that he does um and it and it punctuates almost the very end of the episode. Yeah. So like it it has some at least stylistic significance, which is interesting yeah. for a, a sort of tertiary character. Um. And so then we um. But I don't know. I just find that Alan stuff like Henry Cherney, who's this like, uh, who I, I've just been rewatching the Mission Impossible movies uh, to get to brace myself for the new one that's coming out. And um, he's in the first. He has like a pretty significant role in the first Mission Impossible, um, where he plays you know kind of this uh, IMF. Um, governmental heavy and he does that a lot he played a lot of governmental heavies in his day a nice canadian henry cherney but like he was in clear and present danger i believe that also miguel sandoval was in so little connection there it's a it's a clear and present danger reunion but like i love him i i love alan uh i love alan's white clothing that he wears all the time that Mm -hmm. like clearly adora makes him wear and um yeah, I just I I think once again it's another character that like I think is 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 getting beautifully deepened by the treatment in the show. So yeah, um, and so then we have sort of this like last I would say 
aspect that you and I had already kind of talked about where like Emma comes in, she wants Camille to go out with her. She wants to talk about John Keen and how John Keen wants to have sex with her. And she wants Camille to come out and play with her basically. And Camille won't, but she then later does leave the house because she's so overwhelmed with the thoughts about Marion and Alice and all that sort of stuff. So she just needs to get out and get alcohol in her. Um, you know, and then she encounters Dick and then we have this like Lord of the flies showdown, uh, in the parking lot. And, um, and previous yeah, to that, um, Camille and detective Dick had struck up a bargain that I think we're going to see in the next couple episodes, which is if you show me around town, if you get me to know like what the past is and she's like, well, we don't have any toothless girls in the past. He's like, yeah, but maybe there's another crime that like, you know, he's like, don't be so literal. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Come on. Uh, you know, and so then he'll answer three questions. So basically they're striking up a, a more of a bond. He's bending a little bit in her request that he, you know, give her information. And, you know, so, um, I don't know. It's, it's been fun watching them sort of dance around each other and I, they've taken on a new closeness now. I think Messina is great in this role. Yeah. Um, the last two things I want to mention, uh, before we get to the spoiler section, um, the Alice stuff, you know, closes out with, um, Camille taking these toilet screws like to her arm. And it, though we've seen her scars and though we see her like carve a word, the word fix in herself later, there's nothing quite so violent as this, which is just like knowing that the screws, though they are kind of sharp, they're not really that sharp. Mm -hmm. So she has to just like really be going at it on herself and the way the darkness of the blood and all of that comes out and the way that she's pulled away screaming is, is a really upsetting uh, tableau, obviously. Yeah. I mean, and it looks so close to like a suicidal action, you know, that you're like, you kind of wonder like, was it in a way, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's gruesome. It's gruesome stuff. And then we have the last, the last sort of uh, Camille shot of um, this, the episode or the Camille sequence where she's driving. She's leaving town. It's, I mean, she's on the road to St. Louis, mm-hmm. um, and she sees. I th- I believe I rewound it a couple times, though. I was I will admit watching on my computer, but I believe she sees Marion in front of her. And then she sees Alice in her rear view. It, yeah, I was um, wondering if, uh, but I also, I like that they've, I mean, not, they kind of already were, but like really in this episode, they've all started to bleed into one another, you know, right. all, all these A's, um, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the nightgown on the, on the person in front of her is a merit is like yeah. a little girl sort of nightgown, I think, but yeah. Yeah. So um, but you never really see their faces clearly, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so she's leaving town in reaction to what? The fight with her mother and her fight with her, with, with Emma, with those, the two kind of. Emma's sticking a lollipop in her hair and she's like, I don't need this, man. I think, yeah, I think it's what you were talking about earlier in terms of that small acting choice that Amy Adams makes where she's just like, I can't control this situation, yeah. whatever this is, you know? Yeah. And like, Emma keeps pushing, leaning on this whole like, aren't we similar? How similar are we? Aren't we similar? And then just like to sort of see this girl who like this younger sister, who's like looking for her reflection in Camille be like such a nightmare, be such a wild nightmare. Uh, you know, probably reminds Camille of some, some stuff um, from her teenage years, uh, which we have yet to see. Uh, but yeah, she's just like, I, I feel like she's just overwhelmed by the ghosts, but you know, it feels like, you know, in in the end of the episode when she throws 
the music player out the window, the music player that she's been using all along that was Alice's. I this, like, talisman she'd been carrying around, essentially. Yeah. She freed... I, I, I would hope that she freed herself of at least one ghost in this episode. Maybe. Uh, yeah, that's, that's or... or feels uh, like what that's what that act should signify. You know? uh, yeah, freed herself or rid herself of, you know, like... And I yeah. think that, like, there's a reason why in the very well one of the very first scenes of this episode that Emma says the dead girls thing you know i mean because that that line haunts the whole episode and Mm -hmm. i think that like maybe she reaches a point in the car where she's like i don't want to be in love with that i don't want to love dead girls you know i I, or at least i need to get rid of one of these girls because i'm not i can't you know function do my job etc um i mean she doesn't say any of that but like that that could be you know the explanation for the tossing the thing out the window yeah i really i really like that so that is the end of the episode we we, the like one of the last shots we get is the fix carved on her arm which uh as i said gives the episode its title i guess it's up to alan's uh record collection now to give us our soundtrack because the ipod's gone Um, (laughs) yes all right alan you you got it let's get ready put on your whites and uh Put on your whitest whites, yeah. D- DJ Allen. Um, Put your fist the- in your mouth and scream if you need to. But yeah. <laughs> um, the only I I uh, I know our listeners will have seen a lot more. The only word that I caught in this episode was the St. Louis sign read "spiteful" uh, before it changed to St. Louis as so she was driving out of town. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's funny. Um, but I guess I should be really looking for those. I'm the Easter eggy things. I keep I always forget because I get kind of caught up in the story, even though I watched too. the episode more than once. <laughs> No, I watched the episode yesterday, and then I was like, cool, the second time I watch, I'm just going to look for words. And then I just got sucked into the performance again, which I think is, like, better. It should be a show that, like, you're captivated by performances and not just looking for words. But if you guys saw more words and want to tell us what we missed, please, please, please do. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Um, I, will, I will look forward to see what you found. Yeah, so before we hop into the spoiler section, if people are about to sign off, Richard, where in the meantime can they find your work? Uh, I'm going to check myself into a little facility for a bit. I need a little tune-up. Um, but past that, I'm on VF.com. I'm on Twitter and Rylaws. Where are you, Joanna? You'll find me deep in the heart of hog heat, watching some <laughs> pigs do something. Yep. Or on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Uh, all right. So this is where we talk about some spoilers. Um, so the top of this episode... Uh, Emma says, my friends would do anything for me. They're my besties, blah, blah, blah. Um, those of us who read the book knows that that like, includes pulling teeth out of a girl's head and murdering children. Mm-hmm. So like, that's what Emma's talking about when she's talking. She's not talking about like they would lend me their shoes. She means they would murder for me or with me, I guess. Um, this whole weren't you curious about me thing that Emma says to Camille, like... I know we talked about this a little bit more broadly in the episode, but um, I think this idea of like Emma really wanting Camille to be as dark as she is, like wanting to find that darkness that I don't know that she's entirely comfortable with um, in someone else. And the best shot she has is someone who like, grew up in the same house as she did, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think that's some, that's part of her fascination with Camille. Is she like, she, she wants to be like, let's be murder sisters together, you know, sort of thing is my, and then it that. becomes clear that Camille's not going to be that person for her. And she gets upset. 
Right. Exactly. And you wouldn't like her when she's angry. You would not. She would stick a lollipop in your hair. Um, mm-hmm. The pig farm scene is way creepier in the book. And that is exactly when I knew that Emma was the killer. <laughs> she's oh, like, I don't remember. <laughs> she like goes. Well, she's just going to the pig farm and she's just, like creepily watching the pigs. And I think she's watching the slaughtering happen. And I was like, what teenage girl goes to watch pigs get slaughtered if she's not also a, a murderer so like uh, if you were a teenager who did that and didn't become a murderer please email us at still watching pod <laughs> at gmail.com we want to hear yeah. your stories of pig watching of pig slaughter watching but so like my thought was that maybe they kept it in but they toned it down so that it wasn't so obvious that like um this girl is a psychopath I yeah i mean because we talked about this in the spoiler section last week where it was like the book is kind of like oh by the way she's the killer on like the page 20 or something you know like <laughs> right, it's right. not that subtle about it and i think that i you know was talking with a friend who like really likes the book and he was like i wonder how that's going to work on the show because you know there's a different expectation on television i think um it's a different, you know, so someone maybe a broader audience, let's say, like how they're going to handle the fact that it's pretty obvious what's up, what's going on. Um, and I think they're doing a good job. You know, I, I will have been, I just caved this week and read the Wikipedia plot summary for of the book. I don't know. I think I just wanted like a little more clarity just for the purposes of doing this podcast, but like, um, I was, I had, I had forgotten a lot of the sort of, finer details of everything and i think that the show is doing a really good job of slowly building those up like i had forgotten kind of the munchausen thing with adora yeah yeah and so that's that's another thing that i want to talk about is like the adora um adora saying to vickery she's like all these dead girls and she's like, and you know, with Mary and dying, it just feels so personal. Like it's about me. And like mm-hmm. that's Adora's own like sociopathy generally, but it's also like she killed Marion. And she's like leveraging, you know, because if you're listening to the spoiler section but you didn't read the book, which I know I know some of you are, um, you know, in the book, Adora has has killed Marion. Uh, it's called Munchausen by proxy, right? Where you yeah. make a child, usually a child or something, someone you're caring for, sick, so that you can help them, and and that's like this weird psychosis. And you see, and this, it's an attention yeah. for attention yeah. for yourself. There was a mommy blogger who was doing it a few years ago. It got it got arrested oh and, and convicted of a murder. She killed her kid because she was oh please, you know my kid's so sick. Like you know, thank you for all your thoughts and prayers. Oh and she God. was the one poisoning him yeah so it's a really fucked up thing that actually does exist um, i learned about it in the film the sixth sense uh oh with misha barton being munchausen yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah yeah a little barfy misha barton <laughs> misha barfin <laughs> um, so the the idea and then you see her do it in this episode with emma where she's like where emma you know we know that emma's drinking a lot but also you have that weird shot where like uh, it's partially to show Alan feeling on the outside because Alan's like sitting by his records watching um, Adora and Emma and Adora is like, you know, combing Emma's hair back. And then Emma says something like, I barfed twice last night. And she's like, oh, I don't like that. You know, and it's like, yeah, Emma barfed because she's drinking a lot, but also because her mother's poisoning her. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's all that stuff that is in there if you know what you're looking for. Um, Something about this, being reminded of Adora's, her, her deal, I don't think this is true, but it made me almost wonder if when Camille catches Adora crying in Marion's bed, if like that was like staged a little bit by her. 
I to be like, oh, oh look at me and all my sort of tragic grief, you know, all that. And it's like, I don't know. It just, it, it, it just, it's funny the way that that character is going to deepen as the show goes and how thus Clarkson's performance is going to. And I'm very excited about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, the murder is revealed in the last chapter, like the very end of the last chapter, and then like mostly handled in an epilogue. And that's what Gillian Flynn does to like reveal her murderer in her book. And that's like, you think it's Adora. I mean, I, I thought it was Emma because of that pig scene. And then the book ends and it's Adora. And I'm like, okay. No, Adora a, was a sort of a surprise. Yeah. Adora was a prime suspect to me yeah. as well. Sure. That works for me. And then, and then the book's like, just you know when you get to the end of the murder mystery and the detective or the reporter whatever has left town and gone back to wherever and they're like yes and then i started putting my life back like that's how much of the book is left is Mm -hmm. like the three pages of like and then i put my life back together in this way and that and in in there is the twist not only is Emma the killer, but she kills again. She kills, like, in Chicago. I mean, it's going to be St. Louis, I guess. But, like, she kills one more time in the final few pages of the book. It's yeah. it's, uh, it's it's a crazy whirlwind of an ending. and um, It's going to be so fun on screen. It's going to be really fun. It's yeah. Really fun. Yep. All right. Well, that is it, I think. And, uh, you know, I guess we'll see what Alan has in store for us music-wise next week. Uh, I can't wait. I'm 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 hoping that I hope the last shot of this whole show is Alan. I don't know. I don't care what he's doing. <laughs> I hope like, his white clothing is covered in or blood. <laughs> it's Alan and Ashley, not in a romantic way, like driving off in a convertible while like Tina Turner, I don't want to fight anymore, plays and the camera zooms out. That's what I want. And scene. Yep. I love it. All right, we will see you guys next week. All right, goodbye. watching this video either i'm dead or i'm in a very 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 bad situation she said oh my god i can hear gunshots i can hear men outside where are they what have they done to them are they dead are they not dead there is one suspect her father the sheikh it's madeline Barron from in the dark we've teamed up with our new colleague heidi blake at the new yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world the ruler of dubai Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.